This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We come to a passage today in Romans where Paul is beginning to wrap up his argument concerning Israel. Chapter 10 kind of ends this bypass, as it were, coming in from chapter 9, uh, and to kind of pick up his, his point here in, in verse 11, his previous point. And he comes today in our passage, and he talks about righteousness. How is it that one is made right? We all, each of us here, has had those times in our lives where we've had to make things right. We've either knowingly or unknowingly offended someone or we've done something that is downright just mean and we've had to go to them and say I'm sorry I was wrong I, I want to make things right between you and me now each of us while we've had those many encounters I'm sure has someone else that we need to be made right before and that is the God of the universe the Jews as Paul will say here, have not recognized the righteousness of God. Over and over again, and through here in Romans, Paul has been showing this to us. They have sought to establish their own righteousness, a righteousness that was based on doing the law. And Paul, once again, is going to show us why this is not possible. Christ has come. He has brought the law to its ultimate conclusion. And it is only in Jesus that righteousness is now available. And this is for who? Just for the Jew? Just for the Gentile? No. It's not just for the Jew. It's not just for the Gentile. It's for anyone who would believe 
in him for all the nations. Paul continues here to rebuke Israel for their lack of understanding. But even as he rebukes them, he longs, he doesn't do it out of a sense to let me beat you up because you're wrong. Let me tell you you're wrong for the sake of telling you that you're wrong. This is not what he's doing. He longs to see his, his kindred come in faith. We'll see this desire for Paul over the next two weeks. Uh, really what Paul is laying forth here is first he's going to lay forth, let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you about salvation. And next week we're going to see the need, the necessity, the requirement to proclaim that message. That's what we're going to see over the next few weeks. Paul, in essence, in chapter 10 is saying, let me give you a lesson in evangelism. Let me tell you about the good news, and then let me tell you about the requirement to proclaim that good news. As we come to this first part today, we'll see three things. The fulfillment of faith, the heart of faith, and the recipients of faith. The fulfillment of faith, the heart of faith, and the recipients of faith. Paul begins here by giving a brief description of the failure of of Israel. He begins by saying, my heart's desire is, is for that they may be saved, but they have a problem, and the problem is apparent. They have failed to recognize Jesus for who he is, and, and this means that they are not part of the, what theologians would call, the eschatological people of God, the end-time people of God, the ultimate wedding supper of the Lamb people of God. They have failed to receive the Messiah. And he's going to expand on this even further. But he has compassion on them. And I, and I think it's important for particularly his readers, but for us to see this as well. He doesn't want the Gentiles to be all haughty and, oh, look, we're better than you now. You didn't see, you saw Jesus, but you rejected him and we're cooler than you. We now have our club card and you don't. No, he's not saying this. It's not about that. And it's not about the Jews who continue to say, we have the law and therefore we're better than you because we have, we're given the law at Sinai. No, it's not about that. It's about something completely different. He is committed to salvation, not just for the Jews, not just for the Gentiles, but for both. Paul is longing for the Jews to experience the faith that he has experienced. I think it's important for us to, for a moment to, to answer this question. Who is Paul? Who is Paul? You might know him as this little guy named Saul. Saul from the Acts, book of Acts, right? And Saul was going about doing something uh, quite heinous. He was killing the church, in essence. But I think Paul gives us probably the best description of who he is in Philippians. He says this. Though I myself, this is Paul writing, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm going to stop there for a second. It, Paul, in, in a very ironic way, is boasting here. He, he, in essence, is saying, you think you're good. Let me tell you how good I am. This is what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, 
a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Man, he's like, you want to see credentials? Let me tell you credentials. I was, I was a persecutor of the church. I, I held the law better than anybody. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's important for a Jew. On the eighth day, you're to be circumcised. Tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrew, he calls himself. So what? He goes on in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This is literally dumb that he's saying here. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes from the, or of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Basically, Paul says his self-righteousness is reckless. It's feces. It's rubbish. It, it does him no good. What do you do with that sort of rubbish? You get rid of it as quickly as possible. Flush, right? We don't let it sit around. We try to tell our kids we don't let it sit around. For some reason, flushing's hard. So what righteousness do we need? We need a righteousness that comes from faith alone in Christ alone. This is one of the pillars of the Reformation. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christos in Christ alone. The Jews, he says, have zeal. He says this in verse 2. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And zeal is a great thing. We should all desire to have zeal for God. Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, we can look at references um, talking about how zeal is good. <clears throat> but what's wrong with their zeal? But not according to knowledge. Their zeal was not according to knowledge. They were ignorant. Their zeal was for nothing. They lacked understanding. They did not understand the law even that they sought to follow. They were looking for a Messiah of their own design. Even the law which they so doggedly follow after was not exactly the law of Moses. They molded it and shaped it into what they wanted it to be. It became what we call Pharisaism. Paul says there's something different. They don't need to rely on their own ignorance, on a righteousness that is apart from God. They have to repent on Christ, Christ who is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. What is righteousness? Righteousness in its most basic form is the state of being right. I need to be right before you. I'm so I come and I apologize for the thing I did, or it's, I, I prove myself to be right all along. When we talk about righteousness in God, it, it's the dynamic activity of God, one commentator says, in 
establishing relationship with himself and bringing all people, or not all people, but all who are his own, into a right state before him. And this is manifested in Christ and proclaimed by the gospel. It is God's activity of declaring right. It's the status of being right before him. And how do we receive this rightness before him? Paul tells us it comes on the basis of faith to anyone, to everyone, I should say, as Paul says here, to everyone who believes. They have relied on their own self-righteousness. This righteousness tied to human effort and human understanding and human doing. I saw it in doing the law. And what's wrong with this? We've seen this before. The law was meant to point them to something more. And so Paul says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He is the end. Of the law. What does that mean? The Greek here word here is the telos. He is the telos of the law. What does it mean? Does that mean the law of, of Moses is at an end? It no longer has any bearing on us? No, that, that's not what it means. With his coming, the, the authority, though, of the law of Moses is in a sense at an end. Uh, let me explain it to you this way: it's like a race. What is the end of a race? It's the finish line, right? But the finish line is also something different. It's not simply the end of the race. It's the goal of the race. The goal of the race all the time was to get to the finish line. And Christ is, the, is in the same position to the law. He is Yes, he is the end of the law, but he's also the goal of the law. The law was always moving towards Christ. Christ brings then a new era in redemptive history. Salvation does not come through the law. It comes through Christ who has fulfilled the law. And the Jews did not understand this. They were so tied to their doing of the law that they failed to see the Messiah who had accomplished all that the law required. They missed the righteousness of God, the righteousness that only comes on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. So now today, those who are believers, our relationship to the law is mediated by Christ. Do you understand that you still have a relationship to the law? You do. But it is mediated by Christ. The Mosaic law no longer is the basis of that relationship. Even Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ has completed the law. He has finished it. It required perfect obedience, and no one else could do it but him. This has come for who? Well, what does Paul say? 
everyone who believes. The law has not ended, though, for everyone. If you do not now believe, guess what? The law is still very much in place for you. The law still today condemns you. Because the law still today demands perfectness from you. And if you are not perfectly living according to the law, then justice will be satisfied. If you live apart from Christ, then the law continues to condemn. But those who are in Christ claim a righteousness that is not our own. Paul goes on here in in Romans and begins to quote from several places in the Old Testament. As we move to our second point, the heart of faith, he begins by quoting, he quotes out of Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 30. He is showing now a connection between law and faith. Israel was to obey the law, but they were also to look for a Messiah who was to come. Leviticus 18.5 You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. There was an expectation from the Old Testament that you were to live according to the law. And if you were to live by them and follow them, then you were to live by them. In essence, Leviticus is saying, if you follow the law perfectly, then you will live. Gospel and law are closely related. Each is important uh, to our relationship with God. But we can never concentrate on the law to the exclusion of Christ. He goes on in Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment that I commanded you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither it is beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. What's going on here? Moses, back here all the way in Deuteronomy, is pointing to something. The law is hard to do. We cannot do the law perfectly. And so there's this crying out, who is going to bring us the law? Who who will ascend into heaven so that we may do it? Who, Who will go to the depths of the sea? That we might hear it and do it. Moses is calling to Israel saying, you must repent. You must live according to the law. You must live according to the relationship God has established with you. And so Moses, or God through Moses, I should say, brought his word. This is my word and you will obey it. That you might know me and obey me. Well, how is his word brought to us now? Why can Paul use this Old Testament language of who will go up and who will go down when talking about Christ? And what Paul is showing us is that the grace of God underlies all the Mosaic covenant. Who will ascend into the heavens? Who will plummet the depths? There's no need to ascend into the heavens, is there? That is to bring Christ down. Why do we not have to bring Christ down from the heavens? Christ brought himself down from the heavens. Who is Christ? In the beginning was the 
Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word was to be the light to the world. He has brought himself, the incarnate world, excuse me, not world, but Word, to us. It's silly to think that we can bring Christ down because Christ has brought himself down. We don't have to go down to the depths. Why is that? Because Christ does not reside in the depths, does he? No, Christ has rose again from the dead. It would be foolishness to think that we can bring Christ from the depths because Christ has risen and has conquered death. And Christ, God's word, is nearer to us than in a way it has ever been before. The actual word of God became flesh. So then what is required? If we need not ascend to the heights or descend to the depths, what what must we do? And the answer is wonderful and beautiful and simple in a way. Because really, here's the answer for you today. What do I have to do to receive this? Give me the, 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 the thing that I must do. It's twofold. There are two things you must do today to be saved. Verse 9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. In a two-sentence phrase, what must I do to be saved? Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Why are these two things so closely linked? One commentator says it this way. Confession is an outward manifestation of a a critical inward response. If you have received Christ in your heart as Lord, then you must confess him with your mouth. We must confess, Paul says here. the gospel. We confess that Jesus Christ is the very son of God, that that son of God did indeed descend to us, that he was both man and God at the same time, that he is the word by which all things were made. And we are to believe in our heart that God raised Christ Jesus from the dead to be the first raised of those who have died. He has defeated death. That salvation is secure. That there's nothing outside of him that we can do to make ourselves right. We must trust in him. We must rest in him alone. That's it. That's the gospel. The gospel's not hard. Well, it is. It's very simple, too. So who is this gospel for? Who is this gospel for? Because this is what Paul's been going on and on about. Well, Israel says they have one thing, and you're saying the Gentiles have another thing, but who is the gospel for? It goes on here. Where scripture says, Verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is now showing that there is no national or whatever either kind of dividing line you want to draw in the gospel. What's true for one is true for all. If you confess in your, with your mouth, and if you believe in your heart, then you shall be saved. It doesn't matter if you're Jew. It doesn't matter if you're Greek. There is no distinction between these people. Christ is Lord of all. He offers his grace to all. And you have this wonderful, beautiful truth. Last week we saw, as Paul said, uh, those who have not sought to do the law, they have received grace. And those who have not sought after, or who have sought after the law, have not received it. But he goes on here to say, look, the gospel is available for everyone. Yes, you Israel, you chosen people of God, you have sought to do his law. The gospel is there for you. Yes, you Gentile, you who are not the people of God, you who don't have the law, the gospel is there for you. You murderers, you thieves, you idol worshipers. Who am I talking about? Israel or Gentile? Both. The gospel comes for both through Jesus Christ. Salvation is for everyone who would believe and call upon his name. So who is the gospel for? Well, the gospel is for you if you have your life together. If you've got it all right, if you're good, if, you're, if you look a certain way, the go- no, that's not it, right? The gospel is for the person who cheats on their spouse. The gospel, the gospel is for someone who has gossiped and destroyed relationships. The gospel is for slanderers, for lovers of money, for those who steal, for those who murder. It is for those who have lived the most immoral lives you can possibly immoral lives you can possibly imagine. The gospel is for you. Now let me tell you a secret. There's no and also for you who live okay. There's no other than that. Because we all fall under that category, don't we? So what must you do? Call upon the name of the Lord. Understand that there's no Greek, there's no Jew. God has a people, and he is calling them from all nations. Uh, The Greek phrase for this, I'll never forget it in my entire life, because of the way my Greek professor would say it over and over again, Pontata ethne. For all nations, for all nations, the gospel has now come. All those who call upon his name. So we simply come to this. Do you call on the name of the Lord for your salvation? It's as simple as that, right? And as difficult as that. Do you call upon the name of the Lord for your salvation? So if you're sitting here and you hear me answer that question, you go, well, let's put two camps there. Either, oh, I don't know. Or maybe you say, no, I, I don't think that I do. Then what's the answer? The answer's twofold. Believe in your heart that God raised Christ Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth. 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the wonderful, beautiful, free offer of the gospel. The gospel is for you. Trust in him. Okay. So you're sitting here, and I know a lot of you. Maybe you're, maybe you're even really excited about the news I'm telling you. Which is good. I'm excited about the news I'm telling you. And you say, yes. I have confessed with my mouth, and I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I say to you now, well, good, feel good and go home, right? No. What now? What now? We're going to talk about some of this next week. But the answer to that what now is twofold. Put sin to death. We cannot allow sin to reside where Christ lives. Do not be content in your sin. But also, we see this next week. What are you doing with the gospel you've been given? Spread the good news. Change the way you live and tell others about Jesus do not be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Do not be ashamed of it. Because it is a message for all people. How can it be for a message for all people if we don't tell all people? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are they to hear? How are they to know without someone telling them? That's what we're going to look at next week. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. We have to be those who are proclaiming the wonderful, beautiful, truth that is in us. The gospel is simple. And the gospel is complicated. We can look at what Paul says here and we go, okay, I see these two things that I must do. I can do that. But Paul's not talking about mere confession for confession's sake. It's not just lip service, is it? The Jews were real good at lip service. It's about heart change. Our hearts must, they must be changed. Paul says in 12 that Lord is the, the same Lord of all. Are you allowing Christ to be Lord in your life? Now here's the wonderful, beautiful truth. No matter if you are in Christ, no matter how much you kick and scream and fight against it, he is Lord of your life, and he doesn't need you to allow him. But are you fighting his reign? We have a tendency to fight his reign, don't we? 
Would he be the Lord that he is? Would we submit willingly to him? And we, would we understand that the gospel is for all? Now, there's a, a, lot, a, a great sense in which we look at this whole Jew and Gentile distinction, and it is lost on us. It can be lost on us, right? We don't necessarily understand it in the same way they would have in Paul's day. And yet, I don't think it's that far removed from us either. Who do you believe is worthy of the gospel? Oh, Daniel, I don't, that's, that's an arrogant position to ever put. I wouldn't put myself in that position of thinking that I, I would say someone's not worthy of the gospel. Has there ever been a time where you've not told someone about the gospel because you were not comfortable with who they were? For whatever reason, they don't look the way I look. They don't smell the way I smell. They don't dress the way I dress. They don't cut their hair the way I cut my hair. We have a terrible tendency to place people in two categories, don't we? Maybe we don't say Jew and Gentile, but we say like me and not like me. I'm okay with those who like me. I don't, I'm not comfortable with those who are not like me. The gospel is for all. We have to remember this. Let us come in faith and not think and presume upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us not be arrogant and haughty and think that we have it all together. But with the good news, with the message of salvation for all, be proclaimed both from this church and from our mouths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your gospel is indeed the good news, the news that brings life. Would the name of Jesus indeed be sweet to us? And would we proclaim it with all our hearts, we pray in Jesus' holy name. See thee as thou art.
I'll praise thee as I ought Till the end I would thy love proclaim With every fleeting breath And may the music of thy name Refresh my soul in death 